Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 229th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Alexandra Armstrong. Alex is the founder and chairwoman emeritus of Armstrong, Fleming & Moore, a hybrid RIA in Washington, D.C. that she launched in 1983 and ultimately sold to four successors after a career of over 40 years as a financial advisor. What's unique about Alex, though, is that she's one of the true pioneers in the industry, earning her CFP marks in 1977 as one of the first CFP classes in the country and the first person in Washington, D.C. to earn the designation, serving for seven years as the first woman chairperson of the International Association for Financial Planning, which would later become the FPA, championing the initial formation of a group of independent broker-dealers that would eventually become today's Financial Services Institute, and serving as the chairwoman for the Foundation of Financial Planning, a board that she continues to sit on this day. In this episode, we talk about Alex's journey through the financial services industry at a time when there were even fewer women in the industry than there are today. Her appreciation for the fact that she was mentored by two women who were both top producers at their firms in the 1970s, and demonstrating that even early on, women could find success in the industry. Alex's early recognition that providing comprehensive financial planning was a competitive advantage and a way to differentiate herself beyond just selling investment products, and the camaraderie that Alex found amongst her other early financial planning peers from around the country who shared a passion for helping people with their entire financial picture in an industry that at the time was still focused almost entirely on selling limited partnerships and other financial services products. We also talk about how Alex's natural ability as a delegator, as she puts it, is the real secret to her success, as it allows her to spend more time on client-facing activities, the importance of involving both spouses of a client couple in the planning process, and going so far as to send each spouse a separate copy of the financial plan before the meeting so they would have time to think about it and ask their own questions, and how having the ability to be picky about who Alex chose to work with helped her foster the formation of lifelong client relationships. And be certain to listen to the end, where Alex shares why she believes a career in financial planning is ideally suited to women, because it allows them to utilize their emotional intelligence and gives them the opportunity to do the work what they want to do using their intellect, making a real difference in people's lives, and earning a good living. How Alex struggled emotionally when it was time to transition out of her own career that meant so much to her, and how she's found purpose and satisfaction serving on various boards, including her ongoing service to the Foundation for Financial Planning. And how Alex found that the transition to retirement ultimately wasn't all that disruptive, in part because of the wisdom that her clients had shared with her about retirement after starting their own next chapters. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Alex Armstrong. Welcome, Alexandra Armstrong, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Michael. I'm really looking forward to today's podcast and the discussion of just your, I think, is rather incredible journey through the financial services industry. I I know you were the first female CFP certificate in Washington, D.C. back in the the 1970s when the CFP marks were were first getting going. You were... Correction, Michael. Oh, yes. Correction. The first certificate. 
I was the first person to get certified as a financial planner in Washington, D.C., male or female. Oh, excuse me. I apologize. You were the first to bring the CFP marks to the city altogether. You got it. Though, admit it, it's not a huge city. And then you were the first woman to chair the IAFP, which for those who don't know, was one of the predecessor organizations to what is now the Financial Planning Association. Right. You know, in, a, in an industry that, as I'm sure you know, has, has struggled to bring women into the industry for really over the, I guess, entire arc of your career that you've witnessed it, uh, nearly 30 years ago, about 23% of CFP certificates were, were women. And as of today, it is still 23% of CFP certificates who are women. It has basically not moved a percentage point up or down in, in literally decades you know, I'm 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 fascinated to to learn more just about your journey of what it's been like going through the industry as as one of the early pioneering women to go down this road. Well, I always say I started in the right place at the right time. My first job out of college was as a secretary in the research department of a regional New York stock exchange firm in Washington D.C. And I was fortunate. It was very strange. It was in the '60s. But two of their, as we used to call them then, the top producers were women. One was a widow with four children to support, and one of them was divorced with two children to support. So they both had an economic motive. But both of them were exceptionally good at bringing in clients and keeping them and prospering. And so I was lucky enough to be in a firm like that. So I had role models way before I even knew what a role model was. And and do you view that as as one of the key components? You know, I, I know there's a lot of discussion in the industry these days of kind of the philosophy. You know, you, you, you can't be it if you can't see it. That you know, having clear role models, like being able to show what those successful opportunities look like, whether it's for advisors who are women or advisors of color, becomes one of the drivers for young people coming in to see like. Oh, well, that's, that's what it looks like. Like if, if, if you can be that, I want to be that too. I think definitely that's true. I was lucky in that both women were attractive, well-dressed, liked their husband, liked their family, and liked their career. And way before, can you have it all? Somehow they did have it all. But as I said, one of the drivers behind it was they, they needed to make money, and they found they were good to, the, to do this, and so they worked out a way to do it. So, And both of them, it was uh, Julia Walsh, who was the first woman on the American Stock Exchange, was my immediate boss. And the other woman was Gail Winslow, who went on to be, she was vice chair of the company when she retired finally. And they really liked what they did, and as you said, you wanted to be like them. So I, as, as I, I do think if you have a role model, they built their business giving lectures. It was back when only rich people invested. And so it was the beginning of the era when people started to say, oh, I guess I could invest. It was way before retirement plans and 401ks, et cetera. But they would give lectures to the local uh, alumni association of Smith College or they would give it to uh, foreign service officers ready to retire. And they built their businesses that way. And that's actually how I built my own business. I find it such a powerful thing to just 
recognize how much the the industry and in particular access to investing has changed. You know, we I think sort of take it for granted today that just the internet is a thing, online brokerage is a thing, right? I, you know, I can I can buy a stock from my smartphone in a couple of seconds. You know, even 20 years ago, like at least I could start buying stocks directly for myself on the internet, right? As E-Trade famously showed, it's so easy even a baby can do it. But <laughs> but when you but when you go back to the the 1960s and 1970s, like you literally couldn't get access to investing unless you found a stockbroker to sell right. the stuff to you. Like brokers were literally the gate people to have access to markets and and their job and their career opportunity was convince people that it's a good idea to invest and not just own CDs in your local bank, which back then actually paid a decent rate at least, but like don't own CDs. There are these things called stocks and you can buy them and and they give better growth opportunities than your local bank CD. And you can only buy this through me. Exactly. And then the other part of it was in the 60s, you bought stocks, mutual funds were were not, they were there, but there weren't that many of them and they weren't as accepted as they are now. So it's amazing what's happened in the mutual fund industry. But when you see the records of some of the old line companies like Capital Research American Funds, you know, they started out then and they they were forging new territory because not that many people bought mutual funds. They would buy AT&T and IBM, et cetera. So but then I was lucky enough to stumble into finding out about financial planning in the 70s. And it really came out of the fact that what I ended up, I wasn't always the secretary of the research department. That lasted about a year. And then I realized I didn't like the academic part of this. I wanted to be talking to clients and working with them. So I was fortunate to end up working for Julia Walsh, who was the star in the firm. And I, it was because she she said, and this is funny because we hear so much about balance, but she said, I don't want to work this hard. I'm making good money. I have four children. I want to join enjoying them. But anyway, Ooh, back to yeah. the subject. <laughs> the subject, which is clients. I was her right hand person, and we had a secretary underneath us to do some of the detail work. And she said to me, "Well, the clients would say to me, well, what about a will, or what about my taxes, or what about?" And I'd say, "Oh, Joe Blow can take care of your estate planning, you know, so and so." But then I thought to myself, I think I want to learn more about that. And there actually was a CFP in our area whose name escapes me, which he'll probably never forgive me. But anyway, he I met him at a due diligence meeting for an oil and gas program. Remember those? And oh, yes. I met him and I started talking to him about it. And he said, oh, there's this program out of Denver and you can sign up for it. And it's a correspondence course. And I said, OK. And I thought the. The worst that would happen is it might help me personally. And I was in my early 30s at the time. So I took it and I finished it in six months. I will say it was not quite as hard as it is now to take that test. But anyway, so then I started lecturing on how you couldn't do investing in a vacuum and that you would do better investments if you did it within the framework of a financial plan. And I think my first financial plan was three pages long. But anyway, which which you like dutifully like typed out by hand. Exactly, exactly. 
<laughs> in fact, one of my clients kept it. And she, believe it or not, is 96 now. She gave me the original. She had kept all those years a few years ago so I could see what it looked like. And I said, oh, my gosh, did I really do that then? Oh, I hope I hope you've like you've kept it and framed it. That's amazing. <laughs> so then because I was in the CFP course, I was invited to the first financial planning conference. And it wasn't and it wasn't the first one they ever had, but it was one of the first. And it was in Philadelphia and they had Legionnaire's disease. So they had to move it. So that takes you back. They took the first one was in Atlanta. And then I found this amazing group of people whom I had led the sheltered life of the New York Stock Exchange where everybody was in three-piece suits and they were all men. And I realized that ours was a very special situation. But if I ever went to a meeting in New York or whatever, I was usually one or two women in the room. So anyway, so I went to this and it was the first IFP uh, conference And again, the women were very much in the minority at the time. But I found out that there was a local chapter. And so I went back and I found all these kindred spirits. Karen Schaefer was one of them, by the way, who is still very active in the business. And so then I, there's always a vacuum of leadership, you know, and people to volunteer for something. So I ended up being president of the chapter. And then they were looking for women on the national board, and I ended up being on the board. And But what was great was then I met financial planners from all over the country. And as you know, the early part of the business, and all the ideas were coming from the South and the West. New York was still clinging to their old traditions and were, were slow to join the party. I mean, they, it was a couple of decades before they they. They said they believed in financial planning, but they really didn't. But the South and the West very much did. So I met people like Bill Carter and people like that who were other pioneers in the business. And because they were in Dallas or Atlanta, they were quick to share their ideas. And all of us wanted financial planning to succeed because we believed in it so strongly that uh, we would all help each other. You know, it's, we'd say, well, I had a problem with this. And it might be with the business as much as with the actual planning part of it, because there are, there are many people do not realize that you get, you're, you're running your own business. And that, that can be a challenge. I think planning and working with the clients is the easy part. The hard part is running a successful business. So I'm struck by that comment that because they were in Dallas and elsewhere, they were they were quick to share ideas. So there, I, I guess there was this dynamic of we're bringing together early financial planners across the country. And because you're across the country, but most of us do business locally, particularly then, like there was yeah. there was no perceived competition. This was we're all in this together trying to create a movement across the country in our own respective areas. That's true. But I will say it was also there was a lot of and still is a lot of camaraderie locally. We had some of the the big leaders come out of Washington, D.C., as you know. Count Davis, who is an African-American, was our first African-American uh, president of the IFP in Washington. And we all know that he went on to start the African-American Association way before anybody else was thinking of that. So there was that camaraderie locally and still is because we still are fighting the fight of what is a financial planner and what is quote unquote a wealth manager. 
And they're often two different things. I have a stepdaughter who's in San Diego, who is a doctor, and she's in her 40s. And we had a conversation the other evening about this. And she really didn't know the difference, even though she had a financial plan, etc. She didn't know that there were people there that all they did was manage money, whereas financial planners bring so much more to the table. So I'm, I'm curious, as you started getting involved in this world of financial planners and, and the IAFP in the 1970s into the 1980s, like you, you had said more than once, it felt like you were, you were finding kindred spirits, like you were finding your people. What, what, what made the financial planning crowd so different than the, I guess, than the finance crowd? Like what was, what was so different that you felt like these were your people, but not where you? with the circles you had been in before? Well, I remember Julie Walsh saying, as a great role model as she is, why are you bothering with this other stuff? That This is too, uh, this is distracting from the core of your business. And I said, because I, first of all, <laughs> I said, I think it gives me a competitive advantage if I offer more than what is a stock and what is a bond. And I think that I could actually help people this way rather than I wouldn't say just making money for them, but that the, that there was it was more rewarding to do this. This whole group of people, at least Bowie was part of this group too. And she was a little younger than we were, but but you know you wanted you wanted to help people, and, and I think that's the unifying thing of financial planners. I'm not saying stockbrokers don't or wealth managers don't want to help people. I'm sure they do, but it's hard work being a financial planner. It's it's a lot more work than just doing investments. And there are a lot of things you can do. You know, you can make mistakes uh, more easily. I mean, there's more liability. There's, you have to really be convinced that this is, is important and that it does bring value and it does help people. And as I am at the end of my career, it is very rewarding to look back and see how you helped people accomplish their goals. When people are all, that's why People have trouble retiring from this business because everybody is saying, oh, thank you for bringing me. I couldn't have ever done this by myself, et cetera, et cetera. And who doesn't want to hear that all the time? <laughs> of course, the market has helped, too. So can you help paint more of a picture for us of just what did what did financial planning look like when you were doing it then, when you were getting going in the business? Like you, you got your CFP marks, you found the IFP, there's this, you know, a scattered group of other people who are doing this while the the bulk of the industry is still traditional finance, traditional stockbroker. So like, what did financial planning look like then? I mean, what did you do for clients that, that made you a financial planner or meant you were doing financial planning at the time? Well, I think the big thing is that people, and this still happens to this day, people came in and said, uh, my grandmother died, just left me uh, 200000 or what, million, whatever it is, and I, I haven't had much experience with this, and I need some help. Or they were getting ready. They were thinking more about retirement. They were in their 50s, and they said, gee, I guess we should start planning for that. And this is the money I have. And we'd say, no, no, we need to look at your total picture. And if you're a couple, we need to look at it from both points of view, because you may find in talking that you have different goals, that, you know, the famous one about retiring, one wants to retire in Phoenix and one wants to retire in Maine, and they've never talked about it. 
But once they get into financial planning, they, this is the sort of thing that we can uncover. And of course, there, there's always the psychology of this business, which is a, the people part of the business is a fascinating part. And just explaining to them how we need to know the total picture. And I always laugh when brokers or other people talk about capturing all your assets. If you're a financial planner, you have all their assets because you have gathered them in the financial planning process. So they're not going to to say, oh, there's a million dollars over there that we haven't told you about because we have to know it if we're going to do a financial plan. How was it different? And it was simpler. I mean, you know, it was more basic. I said the first financial planner I did was three pages long, but I remember going to a conference in San Francisco where I was introduced to one that was 100 pages long and was full of numbers and, you know, and all these things. And I was overwhelmed. I said, oh, my gosh, can I do this? But that's the other part about financial planning business is that, as you were saying earlier, nobody does it exactly the same way. There isn't a financial plan. There are components of the financial plan, or you do hourly financial planning, or you do it different ways. But Back then, there were as many ways of different doing it then as there are now, probably. Well, and I'm also just wondering, I mean, what did a, creating a plan literally look like? Because I'm, I'm cognizant that just if we're, if we're getting all the way back to the start of your career, like we do not necessarily have personal computers in the office quite yet. I mean, are, are we... Are we actually in a world of, of typewriters? Did you find a change in what we were doing in plans when computers in the office started showing up and becoming a thing? Well, I don't have the historic thing, but I do know we did have computers in our office. They were big, bulky things. In fact, they were memory typewriters. I remember to this day when somebody calls up and wants to learn about our services, we send them the A3 letter. And A3 was the part on the IBM computer that spewed out the new client letter. So there was automation. It just wasn't nearly what it is today. And, of course, it was it was tedious doing all the tax projections and that sort of thing. It took a lot longer. But I will say one thing I developed then, and I don't I, – I really went – I'm a big believer in conferences and learning from other people – you know, you can you can pick up one or two ideas and they can make all the difference. But I think one of the secrets, if there is a secret to my success, if we call it a success, is is delegation. While I majored in math my first two years in college, it got too abstract for me. And I'm a detailed person, but it's not the part of business that I liked. So early on, I hired somebody who was much more numbers oriented than I am who liked doing that stuff, who liked it. So we have in our firm always had a financial, somebody that all they do is the financial planning. And our job is to present it to, to the, the initial interview, to present it to the client, to explain it, to give them the ongoing advice. But we're, we're big into having somebody else do the detailed part who's really up on all the intricacies of this because it's a tough business. I, I honestly don't know how a sole practitioner can do it because there's so many facets. And it seems like uh, each year exponentially, it gets more complicated. Like who knew we were going to have to learn about crypto and that sort of thing, which is still sort of a foreign language to me, but I'm trying to learn it. But it's constantly changing. And you need more than one point of view. You know, you might be 
I'll give you an example. I, I'm known as a decision maker. I've, I've just moved from one place to the other. And people said, oh, you make decisions so quickly. I, I said, that was my business. You have to gather all the facts and then make a decision. And sometimes it's wrong, but you just have to keep on. You know, you do the best you can, then you keep on. But if you have, if you're only looking at it from your point of view, you've got to have some people around you who, who might have a different perspective, a different background. So I'm I'm struck by the the dynamic of just trying to delegate. I, I feel like that's always been a challenge for a lot of advisors. It's this idea of if I'm, you know, if I'm the advisor, either a isn't isn't my value to to do all the analyzing, right? Like I'm 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 supposed to do all that stuff. How can someone else do it because it's my value? Or how do I present it to the client and bring it to them if I'm not the one that made the plan and did the number crunching and did the analyzing? Was that a challenge for you or that was? No, not at all. I started my business in the 80s, 83. So as I said, right from the beginning, we had a financial planner and, and who that's all she did. In fact, we at one point had a department that had three financial planners. And that was when we overexpanded, but that's another story which I could talk about. But anyway, so the financial planner would go into the meeting with me and we'd gather all the information. And then we'd say, you know, we'll be back to you with this. And then she would develop the plan and then give it to me. And I would review the plan. And I would question because I knew how to do it. I, I might question this, this thing or another thing or say I would change the verbiage here. But supposedly one of my attributes is I can translate complex concepts into simple ones. And so sometimes they would start talking technically. And I said, you know, they're not going to understand what you're talking about. We, we, I won't say dumb it down, but we've got to make it a little simpler. And then we would produce the plan. And we actually had a written plan, which we sent to clients purposely. I know some people present it in person, but we think that people need time to go through it and to earmark you know, I have a question here. And we say that to them. I said, where you have a question or maybe we missed a mark or maybe you thought it over and you're thinking something else, you know, put a marker and then we'll sit down and talk about it. And so then we have a follow on conversation and the planner again would be there because that's how he or she learns. So then we come and if we had to modify the plan, then we can redo it. Also, we, we would send two copies, one, and we still do this, one to the husband and one to the wife, if it's a married couple, because again, they may have two different reactions or one might understand it right away and the other might not. And so, and I say that follow-up interview is really, it's not an interview. I said, this is your meeting. I want you to answer, ask any question you have. We'll go through it together, but you know, but that time, because I think if you present a, a plan to someone in person, it's not their language. It's it's our language. And they will stand, sit there nodding and they don't want to pretend that they don't understand what you're talking about. And, and it is regardless of what their background is. We have a lot of lawyers as clients. They're very good at what they do, but this is a different different world to them. And you have to explain it to them that way. So anyway, to answer your question, that's why I delegate it to someone else. It's really a team effort. But as we all know, to crunch the numbers takes a while and to think through what the solution to the problem is takes some time. And I'd rather somebody else took that time and then my look at their conclusions and, and review it with them. 
I'm fascinated with this framing though of of always sending out a full a full copy of the plan in advance and and specifically sending two copies to a couple so each one can go through it and like I'm I'm just imagining the client scenario where you know they come in for the meeting and like one of them you can tell they probably never even cracked the spine and then the other one has like tabs and stickies coming out of it from oh, exactly. all the different exactly. all the different places and you get you get a really clear understanding the moment they sit down at the table, like where the questions are going to be coming from and and how they may have approached the planning process differently. But the other thing, which again is a little off the subject, but it, it speaks to the meeting. I've always been amazed and actually questioned the statistic that the widow goes to a new advisor that, you know, what is it? 80% go to a new advisor. That's because the advisor did not do a good job to start with. You have to always make sure that you involve both people. And lots of times the spouse, and let's make it female, and it usually is, unfortunately, doesn't speak up because they may be very good at their, even if they're a career woman, they might be very good at advertising or whatever their bailiwick is or as a doctor but they, this is a new language to them and they don't understand. And you have to make sure that you turn to the, to the spouse and say, well, what do you think about that? And I think sometimes too often an advisor doesn't do that. They work with the person who's answering their questions or who is opening up and ignoring the other person. You may know Joni Youngworth, who is one of the principals at Commonwealth. And I think it's so funny because she went into the trust department of the bank with her husband, who was an eye surgeon, and it was a woman she was meeting with. And the woman directed, and this is a woman who's vice president of broker-dealer, <laughs> say she directed all the questions to her husband. And in fact, she made more than her husband, and she had more assets than her husband. And that was the end of that. You know, that she, she told me the story afterwards. She said, we walked out. And Steve, her husband, said, oh, I thought that was really good, didn't you? <laughs> Jody I felt said, like no. I had a real connection with that advisor. <laughs> I said, Jody said, no, we are not going to that person. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and Steve hadn't even picked up on the fact that it had been all to him and not to her. So, Well, he, he was having fun in the meeting. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> this does make me ask, though, I, I, I feel like for – a lot of advisors, there's a hesitancy around sending sending the plan in advance to the client because, as you've noted, like it can be kind of complex. This may not be their language. It's like a lot of numbers and charts. And I find a lot of us seem to be more, like concerned that they're going to be even more confused if we give them the plan, like we give them the standalone plan and let them just peruse it and sort of run amok with it. And then they come in after they may or may not have gotten themselves even more confused by trying to follow things that they didn't necessarily entirely follow because this isn't familiar terrain for them. And that was our whole goal was we were going to take it through with them. Did you find there were troubles where you know they they got lost or made mistakes or or had problems because they were going through it on their own and didn't necessarily have the finance background or that's just part of the learning process? Or like, do we worry more than we should about that in the first place? We just need to get over ourselves. Well, I would make the case you make the plan readable and understandable and you don't make it too complex. That you don't, because as we do little things like double space, so it's easier to read. If it's an older client, we make it bigger print. We minimize the charts and the numbers. We make sure they're 
the what needs to be there is there. But if they want backup, we got it back at the office. But we give them basically the executive summary version. I mean, I'm not saying it is, it's not 50 pages, it's more like 20 pages. And it's the basics. And at the end of it, we have a to-do list. We say, okay, one, you need to do this. And then there's a little space and say, it says date done. So you're supposed to put in the date it's done. You know, it might be as simple as go see your estate planning attorney, need to see your pension plan, more of your pension plan or, you know, something like that. So we make it, I'm not saying it's a primer, but I'm saying it's it's a layman's version. And if they want all the backup, we've got it, but we give them the basics. So I, I it's rare that I've seen somebody overwhelmed. And people seem to fall into one of two categories. One of them wants to go through it page by page, and you think, oh, my gosh, but that's that means they're engaged. Others say, they go to the back of the, the thing, and they say, okay, let's do this, this, and this. I don't understand this. You know, it's a personality issue. I like that. That is a good point of just you get a real clear understanding of their communication style and their approach when they just come to that meeting and – yeah, either they're going page by page or they go right to the last page, but it's going to get clear in a moment what kind of meeting you're going to have and what kind of client you're sitting across from. Right. And that's another question, which is, I think, another secret of success, which is a luxury you sometimes can't afford at the beginning, is being picky about your clients. I mean, the first interview we, you know, meeting we have with a prospective client, we say, this is a two-way street. We want to make sure we consider this going to be a lifelong relationship. That's what financial planning is all about. And so we want to make sure you're comfortable with us and vice versa, that it's a good, good relationship because we want to do a good job for you and we want you to pick the right person and not everybody is the right mix. And I think a lot of mistakes can be avoided if you are picky about your client, because what I say is our our target market, and I know you're big into niches, but our target market is the client who is too busy or is not interested in doing this for themselves. They might be able to do it for themselves, but that isn't what they want to do with their time. And of course, being in Washington, D.C., we have a lot of those people (laughs) because they're working 24-7. So they just want somebody that they can trust, whom they think is knowledgeable, help them. So they can delegate that part of their life to someone else. And so you've always been clear early on, like, we're here to work with delegators. Yes, exactly. Yes. And did I hear, as, as you were talking about how you would frame up the plan itself, that you know, sort of executive summary and limited charts up front, recommendations page at the back. And and you say there's like there's a blank next to each recommendation where they are writing in, like w- which ones they want to do and when they're going to do it by? No. It's the title the the heading is date done. So date you've got one, done. do this blank, you know, da 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 and above it's date done. They're supposed to write in the date they did it. Okay. Well so what if as of the new plan, when you're just delivering it, they haven't done anything yet? Or, or the idea is you're going to keep this and we're going to look at it every time we come in and, and, and see if you're checking things off on the date that you got them done. Right. But in some cases, it might be 
we make portfolio recommendations as well as, you know, combining, let's, let's go see your estate planning, check your insurance, umbrella insurance. That's fairly easy to do. You would know what the 401k choices would be. But in some cases, we will have said, we will have made specific recommendations, which they say, go ahead and do them. In other words, investment recommendations or something like that, they would say. So we can say, they done. Okay, we'll do that this afternoon. So help me understand the the journey of just how your career got going in the early years. You said you started at the brokerage firm as a as a secretary in the research department in relatively short order. You ended up getting a job on Julie Walsh's team and became her right hand person, and then a few years later, you were starting your own business. So can you talk to us a little more? Like, what was that path? How did that How did that journey work? Well, phase one was phase one was the first 10 years when I worked with Julia Walsh. I mean, because I was in the same firm with him when I was the secretary in the research department. And then the second decade, she decided to break off from the brokerage firm and start her own business, which was a New York Stock Exchange firm, which uh, <laughs> in this day and age, nobody would do it that way. But that that was the way we did it. So like when you went to launch your own advisory firm, like you literally launched a broker dealer. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Not, like not joined a broker dealer, like yes, made we launched a our broker own. dealer. <laughs> so, and I was a financial planning department and I had one person where I just gotten my CFP and she really didn't know what it was all about, but she thought it sounded like it was good. So I developed over the years, I kept, you know, going out and lecture. In the middle of it, I got a divorce and I had been married five years and no children. So that's when I got, I have to admit, more serious about my career because I thought, you know, I, I really like what I do and I I want to really get involved in this. And so I was probably dedicated more to it. So anyway, I built the department up to five people. And then another firm came along, Tucker Anthony, and bought the, our firm. And I found that they had two people in their financial planning department in Boston, and that was it. And I had a feeling this was not going to work. And I thought, well, the worst that can happen is that I start my own firm. And if it doesn't work, then I can go to work for a brokerage firm was what what I was thinking then. Though I did interview with Dean Witter, and the manager told me during this process, manager told me, I've never hired a woman. Like just literally, like yeah, I, I mean, he admitted it. He shouldn't have, but he did. <laughs> and he pretty much said, "I'm not going to start now." So anyway, I was going to say that I'm assuming the context of that conversation was not followed by, "But I'm ready to make you the first. <laughs> exactly. Apparently, I didn't impress him enough. Anyway, so when they were bought out, I decided to start my own firm. So I took my unit of five people and started my own firm with the thought that, you know, if I didn't do it now, I never would. And I didn't want to be in a rocking chair down the road and, and wish I had done it. And being single at the time and having no dependents helps a lot because I only had myself to support. So you can take on more risk. And at the time, I didn't know what a business plan was. And I had a good friend in the financial planning group who worked for a bank. And he said, I said, well, I think I need a line of credit. And he said, well, telling, looking at what you're showing me, I don't think you need it, but you should have a business plan. I said, well, what's a business plan? <laughs> and so, that sounds neat. What's that? 
then I found out it was just a roadmap. I mean, you know, they have these fancy names for things. And I said, I said, oh, okay, well, I can do that. So I did that. And I did get a line of credit, not from him, but from another bag, which actually was a woman's bag. But I never used it. But it was good to have as a security blanket that I knew that if I needed, I had something to fall back on. So that started in 83. And again, Starting out, I had all these friends in the IFP around the country who had started their own business around the same time and what obstacles that they overcome. And, you know, we'd be sitting around, which is what you miss at conferences now because of COVID. But, you know, you'd sit around and you'd say, oh, I hired the wrong person or I did this or did that. But you had people to talk to 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 make it easier. So we were we were pioneers, but we didn't realize it. I love the framing of just what it sounds like your mindset was at the time of like, well, I'm, I'm going to go try this. If it doesn't work out, like I can go back and get another job. Like there, yeah. there's still jobs. It's not like if I do this and it doesn't work out, I'm unemployable. I just, I'm going to try it. And if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't, I'll go back and get a job later. I was told when I left the firm, because it wasn't very popular when I left the firm, even though they were being bought out and they were getting money. I was, I would, I was told that they were betting I wasn't going to make it. That it would last more than a year. Talk about incentive. <laughs> yeah. So basically, you just did it to prove them wrong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, help me understand what the business looks like as as you launch. I mean, you you said you actually were bringing some people with you from your financial planning department, but like. Did, did you have clients of your own at this point? Were you bringing clients or were like you were bringing team that had to go get clients? Like what, what was the actual business that you were getting going? Julia pretty much let me run with my own division. You know, if people wanted just investment advice, they went to her, but she understood that financial planning might be something new and she was at least that open-minded. And so, as I said, I would speak maybe three times a week to different groups of people preaching the message of the, of the investments, particularly for women. You know, again, I just knew that women needed to know more than they knew. And the, the basic theme I used was, which I use to this day, is you may not be involved now, but there's going to come a time that you will have to be involved either due to death or divorce or just longevity. And that you don't need to know all the answers, but you do need to know the questions to ask. And here are the basic questions to ask, not about how to find a planner, but things like wills and, and taxes and retirement plans and that sort of thing. So I basically had a 45-minute speech that I would give to different groups, and I just beat that drum, and it apparently resonated with enough people that but I, I will say I didn't attract all women. I also would speak. I'd modify the speech for couples and planning for the future and how investments made more sense in, in a plan. So how I built my business while I was in Julia Walsh and Sons was I built up my own clientele. And and Julia would give me, you know, some people would come in and maybe they were younger and she would she would move them over to my side. So I was very fortunate that basically I was allowed to take everybody with me who wanted to come. And that was pretty much the whole thing. So that's how it worked out. But, you know, what, what was really fortunate is that I had been in a New York Stock Exchange firm, regional firm. I'd seen what 
people did and didn't do that seemed to work and didn't work. And then at Julia Walsh and Sons, we started from scratch. So I knew, again, the basics of starting a business and what worked and didn't work. So it would have been good to have a business school background, but but I think I got my own business school from just observing what other people did and then trying. And of course, you make your own mistakes, but at least they say most businesses that succeed are doing what they did before. In other words, if you work for a dry cleaner and then you've set up your own dry cleaning business, you're probably going to succeed. But if you decide you're going to open a restaurant, you may not. It's the same principle here. Having had the background of the financial business, I, I sort of first thing I did was one of was to go to a major accounting firm and say, I need your help. And believe it or not, I set up my own broker dealer then because that's the way Julia done it. So I thought everybody should have their own broker dealer, <laughs> having no idea of, of what I was encountering. Within about six years, I decided this was not a good path for me. And so I gave up my broker dealer and affiliated with a broker dealer firm. But I, I do believe in, in getting good help. And, and this I said, I know I'm not in your bailiwick as a client, but would you consider taking me on? And he said, yes. And so that was very helpful. And I think it's good from credibility that if you had a broker dealer, that you had a name firm behind you. What was the business model at the time that you were launching in in the 1980s doing doing financial planning, well, I would say under a broker-dealer, but like with your own broker-dealer, what was the business model of it at the time? Well, not as many people had their own broker-dealer, but it was doable. You have to have a certain amount of capital, and I was not independently wealthy, but I had built up savings of my own. So if I kept it small, but I would say most people were affiliated with a broker dealer. At the time, I was dealing a lot with a real estate company called Winthrop out of Boston, and they had never, they dealt mostly with the big name firms. And they were not interested in going to the FSCs of the world because FSC and other like companies had their hand out and they said, well, if you're going to do business with us, you have to give us money first. And they were used to dealing with the big firms that did not have the same, weren't asking for as much. So that's, it's because it's the world I, I knew. But I would say, going back to financial planning, my friends in the financial planning field were involved with broker dealers, which, as I said, I soon came to the realization it was stupid to have my own and that I should affiliate with a broker dealer. And and the business at the time was just selling what in the brokerage environment? Is, is this, are we still in real estate partnerships? Are we still selling individual stocks? Is is like mutual funds becoming a thing or or not yet? Mutual funds by this time. I, okay. I started getting involved in mutual funds in the 80s. Okay. And then we had tax shelters till the 80s, the mid 80s, when the tax law changed. Was it 87 that it changed? Something like that. Yep. So we, we had some tax shelter business too. It was two to one. It wasn't the, the four to one or whatever right off. It was the more conservative ones. So the the model essentially was you know we, we do comprehensive financial plans for clients and then ultimately when you're ready to to implement and allocate your dollars like we have mutual funds we have real estate investment opportunities like we'll 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 help you invest your portfolio to achieve these goals that we've identified in the financial right plan. and you are free to do it elsewhere if you want to 
from the very beginning and to this day, we still charge a separate fee for the financial plan. I was going to ask, were you charging separately for plans doing this? Yes, from the very beginning. I'm sure I can't, I don't have a memory of what I charged. I don't remember it being a huge amount, but I did charge. And we've always charged and said, we want them to be two separate activities. We want to make sure that if you want to implement someplace else, you can. The fact was 95% implemented through you because you had built up so much trust with the financial plan. So when you started the firm, like what did the what did the business look like? I mean, you said you brought some people along from your financial planning department. So is that like you were doing the client stuff and then there were four support people or were there other advisors as part of this? I had a right-hand person who handled clients too with me. You know, in other words, they could call either one of us then I had the financial planner from the very beginning who was doing the financial plans. I I taught her how to do it. And then that was her department. We had a secretary and we had another advisor who was, uh, had a CFP and was, was sort of starting out. His prior career was teaching seventh grade. And I said, if you've got the patience to teach, then you can be a financial planner. (laughs) So And he's still in the business today, actually, uh, with a firm in in Washington. But that was the the nucleus. And over the years, when I had my own broker-dealer, I had a head of the broker-dealer. I had a due diligence guy. I had the overhead killed me. There were maybe, there were 30 people altogether. I was of the financial planning revenue. I was, I had five People, John, John Kamak was one of my people whom you know from T Row. I had five who, and I paid them 50% of the revenue they brought in. And then I had all this overhead. And then when the tax law changed, basically I was earning nothing and everybody else was making money. And I thought there's something wrong with this model. That's when I collapsed it and said, Okay, this is this is not working. We've got to. I'm going to give up my broker dealer and get a get. I don't need a head of the brokerage firm. I don't need a due diligence guy. I don't need an accountant. And so we part parted amicably. They all knew, understood the the reason for it, and we said, okay, we're going to re redo this whole thing, and I am going to have partners, and we're going to share the revenue, and we're going to share the overhead. So it was more like a law firm. It was how we reconvened it. So it was complete reshuffling. And it really was caused by the tax law change, which also coincided, if you remember, with the crash of October of 87. It wasn't a good year. <laughs> so, but, you know, you come out of it, you learn from your mistakes, and you say, well, there's a better way to do this. Let's find it. And I had, I've always had friends in the business, male and female, mostly male who have said, well, think about it this way, who have given me advice, some of it good, some of it bad. But I think that's really what's important is listening to other people you respect and saying, well, would that work for me or not? And taking it from there. And one of the keys was trying to find a a broker dealer that that was good for me. And at the time, it was FSC is who I chose, which is considerably different than it is now, but, but fit my needs at the time. Like what defined a good broker dealer at the time? Like what what was it that made FSC an, an appealing broker dealer to affiliate with at the time? Then their CEO, 
At the same time, I had stepped down from being chairman of the IFP, but at one of my last acts was to put together the broker-dealer organization. And that was, I said, if we're going to work, being from Washington, and I had a cousin who was head of the SEC, and given the New York Stock Exchange background, I said, you know, the people, the establishment doesn't respect us, us, the broker-dealer, independent broker-dealer, we've got to change that. And if we're going to change that, we've got to be playing at the same table. So uh, the first thing we've got to do is to get the broker-dealers talking to each other. And then from there, then we can go from there. And so I convinced the IFP that we should set up our own association within the association, which is now, as you know, is broken off and is now Dale Brown's organization. Right. So so the, the broker-dealer division within IAFP that became the broker-dealer division FPA that got spun off to FSI. Exactly, which I don't think was a good idea, but I mean, that's not my bailiwick. Anyway, so we got people sitting across the table from each other who are basically competitors, all men, all with their arms folded in front of them. But I got them did, and we even got a couple of broker-dealers that were owned by insurance companies, and we got a nucleus of 12 of them sitting around the table and saying, so this is 88 around there. Listen, if we're going to work with the NASD, we can't work with them fragmented. We've got to work as a unit. And so it took about a year, but people started started coming around, and I was chair of it the first year. And there was another guy who had his own broker-dealer, but all the rest of them were much larger organizations. But part of the reason, uh, I'll tell you another one, Joe Deach was also one of, uh, was part of this group who is now, you know, founded Commonwealth. It gained traction because people saw the, the logic of it, of what they could do united. But I had an ulterior motive, which is, I thought, I'll get to know these people and find the group that I would probably be the most comfortable with. And at the time, Jim Wisner was the chair of FSC, and he had come out of Cigna originally. And I liked the way he handled himself and his vision, and et cetera. They had bought it back from Mutual of New York, I think it was, yeah. They had bought FSC back, and it was an ESOP. And so that's who I ended up going. And how I chose it was I liked what he was doing, and I liked the representatives I met who were part of his organization. And I thought, well, this is the best solution for me. So that's what I did. Well, and I'm cognizant as well. You know, Cigna, Connecticut General is one of the the early insurance companies that was very, very financial planning centric. You know, Cigna did it in the insurance side and, and IDS, then American Express, then Ameriprise did it in the in the brokerage side, he was probably coming with a much more financial planning centric conversation that was jiving with what you were doing? A big picture view of two. I mean, he was he w- he was not somebody who came out of a financial planning firm and started his own broker dealer. He was somebody who had the corporate view. So he thought big. So you're now living in in FSC world. You you don't have to have all of this organizational infrastructure and capital requirements to run your own broker dealer because you're now affiliated in, tucked into a larger one so that you can just focus on the the business itself. You wanted to build in a model that was, as you would put it, more like a, a law firm with partners who share revenue and share overhead. Right. So so like what came next then? Just how did the 
where did the business go from there? And I guess again, how many of you was it down to once you got rid of the like the dozens of people in the broker dealer infrastructure you didn't you didn't have to have anymore? I think there were ten of us and five of us were advisors and the rest was support. So it's down to ten. Down from like thirty yes, something that you exactly, had previously. Exactly. Actually in the process, two of them were wooed away with sign on bonuses. And actually, I was just as pleased they were. So <laughs> it worked out fine. And one of the other advisors decided he wanted to do something differently. So it just sort of was natural. I mean, you know, the old law firm is what you kill is what you eat. So it had to appeal to the entrepreneur type. And some people wanted more security than that offered. But we kept all our clients. They could have cared less what we did, you know, as long as we were there to take care of them. That's all they cared about. So there wasn't any loss of clients. And frankly, I thought I'd die to go to heaven because that was an awful lot of 87, as I said, was a bad year. I mean, between the tax law change, the, the market crash, and my mother died that year. I thought, what else could happen? So <laughs> anyway, but we got through it. But that's it. If, if something's not working, you got to re-examine it and say, is there a better way to do it? And I said, there's got to be a better way to do it. So, and there was. When I'm struck, just it's when you were at the point where you literally have the decision, like, am I going to run my own broker dealer or am I going to affiliate with one? You just, it strikes me when in today's world, I feel like there's sort of this expectation that your broker dealer should pay out almost all of the revenue. There's a lot of competition around around payout rates. But I'm just thinking of it relative to this environment, right? When when you get to go from like 30 employees down to 10, you know, in a world where like, oh, I can work with another broker dealer and they and they just pay me 50% of my revenue, like that probably seemed like a really good deal at the time. No, no, no. They were more like 85, 90. Okay. They were they were that they were that high even then when you're shedding Well, we had pretty good revenue. I mean, okay. we're at a billion now, but I don't even know what we were at then, but I know we ranked in their top 10. So okay. by that time, even then, I was sort of a well-known name. So it was a coup for them to get me. Okay. So that entered. So we, we, we got a pretty good deal. And my, my big criterion was I wanted to have access to the decision maker and Jim and I had built up this relationship over the years, and I had a lot of respect for each other, so I didn't abuse it. But if, you know, something went wrong because we were one of the top producing offices in the country, you know, he would solve the problem. So that was important to me as far as that goes. Been a pretty sizable financial lift and relief then just to yes. to move away from that much overhead and capital requirements and still be drawing in an, an 85 or 90% payout at the time, like that's a, that's a really big change. And just somebody screening the products, you know, and bringing new ideas to you instead of you, them coming to you and you're having to make all the decisions. And I mean, our due diligence people were good, but they were kids and, you know, they, you, you need another layer. And I was always worried about liability. I always, you know, my reputation is I mean, our, everybody's reputation is very important, but it's so easy to make a mistake for the right reason. You know, you thought you did all the right things. So 
I want is another layer of people looking at things, bringing new ideas, et cetera. And again, the camaraderie of not only the association, but also camaraderie of the other people who are affiliated with it. I mean, Jim Harrington on the West Coast became one of my best friends, and he almost ran a broker-dealer within the broker-dealer. And you just need other people. you got to always get new ideas. You always have to, you can't be stagnant in this business. It's, it's why I love it because it's never the same. It's, you always have challenges. You always have to keep learning if you're going to succeed. And, and it's, so it's stimulating and you never get bored. You might get ulcers once in a while, but you don't get bored. What I'm struck as well, the kind of focus on due diligence resources, you and I know in, in today's environment, I feel like a lot of, a lot of us in the advisor world sort of take that for granted. There's just, there's, there's so much information out there. It's pretty straightforward to research things. A lot of stuff is relatively transparent, at least most of what we, we use in the, in the advisor world these days. But, you know, in, in the, in the 1980s, when all the, all the real estate and oil and gas limited partnerships were a thing, you know, they were heavily supported by the tax law that really benefited them right up until the tax law changed and it didn't. didn't. And, (laughs) and, And a bunch of those, like, People literally lost a hundred, like a hundred percent of their value in some of them. I mean, some of them were super leveraged and went to zero. So, in in we tend to talk about due diligence today, I think, in a very different manner than what it was then. Where the difference between doing do good due diligence on a real estate limited partnership versus not was like literally whether your clients got their money back or didn't. Right. Exactly. And. And what I wanted was also a broker-dealer that was proactive, that was searching out for other things. So what happened next was, I can't remember how long we were at the FSC, maybe 16 years, 18 years. But then Sun America bought them out and things changed. And it was more the leadership. (laughs) Although we were bought out and we were one of the top offices a year by went by and the head of the place did not take a plane from Atlanta, Georgia to Washington, D.C. to visit us, which I thought was a little strange. I didn't take it personally, but I just thought it was dumb business. You know, you're supposed to take care of your best clients. So that's when we started looking. And that was in 2007, <laughs> 2008, while the world was falling around us again. So we said that, uh, I remember one person saying to me, have you ever seen it this bad, you know, in terms of the markets and turmoil, et cetera? And I, I said, yeah, I saw it in 87, but I said I didn't have as much money, at personal money at risk, <laughs> nor did I have as many clients. And so 2008 was pretty tough. But anyway, we made the decision that at the time, FSC, South America was owned by AIG, they were owned by AIG and they were trying to decide whether they were going to spin it out or sell it to somebody else, their broker-dealer organization, which, of course, they did subsequently anyway, but this was back earlier. And I thought, well, I don't want them deciding who's going, where we're going. And so that's when we started looking. And we looked at Raymond James and FSC and Commonwealth, which is the one we went with. And again, our decision-making was based on access to management and what they were doing in the technology field and what they were doing in the due diligence field, bringing new ideas. And also the fact that they had a division that helped you develop your business. 
which I thought was really good. They had people who would work with you acknowledging that financial planning was not just clients. It was running a business successfully. And how could they make you a better business person, which I thought was very helpful. I'd like to touch on something else if I can. And then if I'm way off subject, and you can go back to the other if you want. The other thing that I learned from Julie Walsh way back when was she was very active in the community. She believed that, and I learned a lot from her over the years, and and she believed if you're going to get your business from your community, you should give back to your community and be involved. So I picked that up from her and really carried it through to this day. And somebody else told me, said, if you're going to be involved in a nonprofit and, and giving back to the community, pick one you really care about. Don't pick it because you think it might do you the best. And then do the best you can on that board, but don't expect immediate business out of it. And you may never get business out of it, but it does give the firm a good name of being part of the community and not just taking from the community, but give back. And so, again, starting, I I joined the a National Association of Women Business Owners back in the 80s and became its president, of course. But again, there was a, a vacuum of leadership. But anyway, then got into, I got involved with the Kennedy Center and with the Boy Scouts and some other, but I only worked with two or three charities. So help us understand the business as it as it exists today. Like what has the business grown to and, and what's the what's the team and structure look like now? Well, we, thanks to the good market this last year, we touched on a billion under management since everybody seems to call that the criteria in which we don't consider the criteria, but it does make us feel good. But anyway, and I think it's maybe 600 families, households altogether. And I have four partners. I shouldn't say I have four partners. I, I have sold my part of the business to them. But What's rather unique is three out of the four started as interns in my firm. And you would think as a woman-owned business, they'd all be women, but they're not. They're men. That's just the way it happened. But they all started right out of college. Two of them are University of Maryland graduates. One is GW, George Washington University. And so we have grown them from then. One of them just celebrated his 30th anniversary. One just hit his 20th the other, the 15th. I also have a woman partner who joined us 15 years ago. But lest you think that I am not uh, carrying the, the flag, we have three women in the firm who have their CFPs and are, are beginning to have their own clients and we're, we're working with them as far as. So we have the four partners, then we have two that are close to them, then we have three under that. And I think all I know is 20 altogether. We're big on interns. We use the, because we're downtown Washington, which used to be advantaged right now, not so much. We have people from GW, American University, et cetera, who are studying finance, who want a job part-time during the year, during the summer. And we usually have at least three or four interns working for us at any one time. It's mostly grunt work, but we try to make it interesting so that they, they leave with some value. And what, is, what has been good is many of them have either stuck and became permanent employees or gone on to something else and refer clients to us. So it's a good feeder and it gives them experience as far as that goes. So what did the 
what does the structure look like then as your as you were looking to wind down? Like, have you completely sold shares at this point, or are you still? Yes. Well, I'm still being paid out, but okay. But most I did it over a five year period, and I, I've done it two or three times. My partners are very fortunate in that none of them have had to go out and get their initial business because I had two other partners who retired. Two of the partners, current partners, they're really principals, they're not partners, were incorporated. But what they have done is they took over the clients from them. And then I spun off some of my clients like eight years ago to one of my partners. And then five years, then I spun off some more. I got down to the 30 nitty gritty of family and friends two years ago. And I finally let go of them last year. That was the hardest one. But we have not lost any of the clients. And I think it's because, well, maybe two, because they, everybody knows that they've grown up in the system and they're part of the culture. But based on those clients, they've referred other clients. And of course, we have next generation clients too. And so what's it like making the, making the transition of letting go the, the last batch of clients? Well, at first it was hard, but I am 81 years old <laughs> and there comes a time. I, I remember Mark DeBurgeon talking to me about five years ago and he said, you know, it's only fair to your clients to, to let go before you have to let go. <laughs> and, and he made me see it in a light other than I was having fun and I loved working with the clients and I loved the business and I hated to, to leave it. But he, he was realized, made me realize this little selfish thinking on my part. I certainly, from an economic point of view, didn't have to, to keep working. So why was I still doing it? So at first, yes, it was hard. But I, I got to say, when, as we were talking earlier in March of 2020, I was just as glad that I didn't have to hold those hands one more time. So, you know, our, our mantra is stay the course. You got good stuff. You, you know, don't change your mind all the way, all the time in the back of your mind. You think, is this time different? And of course, it never is. It's just a question how long you have to wait to, for it to come back. But it, it's, it's tough. And I didn't want to have to go through that one more time. And this time I didn't. So what, what surprised you the most of building an advisory business? I don't know. You know, frankly, I don't know how I ever got in this business. They're the best, the rest of my family's academics. There are no business people in our business. I didn't, I mean, I had... I didn't have any role models in our family. I, I had a liberal arts college. I mean, my college degrees in history. I majored in math the first two years and moved to history. I don't even know how I got in this business or why I ended up being good at it. So I'm not sure I know how to answer your question. What surprised me about the advisory business? About building your business. How sometimes people weren't as passionate about the business as I was. You know, that they had other other goals. I just, I just felt it was so important and it was so energizing. And then there were other people sort of, it was a job and I, I didn't view it that way. I viewed it as this is something special. As I said, what not to like about this business. I mean, in that you help, you use your brain, you help people and you make money. So what more do you want? You use your brain, you help people, you make money. What more do you want? What was the low point for you on the journey? 
Actually, it was 2008. So we'd gone through the, you know, when was the first crack was September, and it was December. And I was in, Jerry and I had gone to New York for Thanksgiving around then, and we went to see a Broadway show. I know it was South Pacific, and it was great. It was wonderful. And I started crying, and I couldn't stop. And I, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I mean, I was in the middle of a Broadway <laughs> theater. And so we, I sort of went off, and Jerry was trying to comfort me, and I didn't know what was wrong. And I said, I said, I've done everything right. I've worked so hard to build a viable business. I've done the right, I've done, I've been ethical. I've done my research. I've done, done everything right. And yet I could lose it all. And I said, it's just not fair. <laughs> and it's because I didn't have control. You know, usually they say business people are risk takers. I don't think they're risk takers. They're people who, they're risk takers if they're inventing Apple. But in a business like this, what, what you're doing is you're in an environment, you control your environment as much as you can. I mean, you don't have to work with people you don't like. You, you can build it in the way you want to build it. You can call the shots. It's very satisfying. But not this was a situation over that I hadn't, hadn't foreseen or had any control over, and I didn't know when it was going to end. And I felt responsible for all my clients. I felt responsible. And that was the other thing. You had to go into the office every day looking cheerful, even though you were dying. So that was a low point. But fortunately, March came and there was another life. So, so what advice would you give younger or newer advisors looking to become a, a financial planner and start a firm today? Well, I would, first of all, make sure, I think it was very helpful to me to have worked with somebody else, you know, worked under to have a model to learn at the feet of somebody who knows what they're doing. I think that, as I said, you may not always do exactly what that person has done, and but either affiliate with a firm where you see there is an opportunity for you to grow, or if you want to go on your own. I guess I said, I would not be a sole practitioner in this day and age, unless you really have a niche that I think you need at least one other person with you and a peer, not, not just somebody underneath you. I would say, and I'd make sure that you have enough money behind you. I had a year's savings. I knew that I could exist for a year if I didn't bring in a dime. And even if I, it, it, it took money to, to make money. So I think you have to have the financial backing, but just make sure you've got solid footing that you, that you really know what you're doing or affiliate with somebody. But I think it's really important to start working with another firm and as I with, with the firm or a person as maybe as their successor. Certainly there is a big demand for successors in this day and age and that's way to, but taking over somebody's business is a lot easier than starting it from scratch. So that's another way to do it. So I wouldn't be that anxious to start my own business. I would be looking for opportunities to affiliate yourself with a viable organization that is doing things the way it should be. And is always looking for new ways to do things. You don't want somebody who's stuck in the past who says, well, we'll always done it this way. Financial planning, I think, is still in that stage where they're looking for other ways to, to do things. But your goal should be to be on the cutting edge, to be 
trying things and maybe they're not all going to work, but, but also I would affiliate with somebody who has a good reputation and whom you can learn from and whom you can add to. I know that in our organization of the three people started with me, the oldest one is in his late forties. And then we have a group that's in their thirties and they bring fresh ideas to us and we listen to them, you know, as, as, we bring them into our meetings with clients, and that's how they learn how to do things. Because hopefully over the years, you, you get a lot of experience and, and can learn how to bring out a client and how to. Anyway, so I guess bottom line is I wouldn't start your business. <laughs> I would affiliate with somebody who has a viable one and where you have an opportunity to grow. Then if you don't have the opportunity to grow, either go with another firm where you do or then maybe consider it. But if you do at least do it with one other person so you got somebody else to talk to. And what do you think the industry needs to do to make it more appealing to to women in particular? I don't understand. I think it's a marketing issue. I think it's ideally suited to women because not to be too prejudicial about this, but women are are as part of our upbringing are taught to listen more and to ask questions rather than to tell somebody what to do. I think sometimes men have the tendency to say, you will do this, 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 rather than working with the client. Many of the men who are successful in it have the trait of listening and asking the questions. So I think our personalities are are suited to it. I think the idea that you're actually helping people, and maybe we have to get that message across, that this is not all, you know, analyzing stocks and mutual funds and, and investments. It is, it's a, as a business of helping people achieve their goals and the difference that you can make in their lives. That appeals to most women. And the fact that hopefully you'll, with a firm like this, that is flexible enough. I think COVID is going to, I know it's ruined careers for some women, but I think COVID has shown that everybody doesn't have to be in the office from nine to five. And that if you have to take your child or pick her up from school, that that's okay. And that maybe that's your, your day from home. But there can be, if you're with the right organization, there's a lot of flexibility in your hours, which is very important to women, particularly married or single women who have children. So I don't know who's going to do the marketing because we sure have been beating the drum for the last few years. The CFP group has been really working on it. I don't understand why more people don't don't affiliate with it, don't go with it. I mean, it does, not, but not everybody wants to work as hard as I did, but but you can work and do well. So where's, where's your focus now? What are, what are you still working on with the industry? Well, the, my, my passion has been for the last 25 years, the foundation for financial planning, which brings together financial planners with people who need financial advice on a pro bono basis. We, as you know, and you've helped us and I appreciate it, Michael, we've built from zero in the endowment fund to almost 25 million We've worked with different, uh, with the military. We've worked with the cancer victims. We've worked with the COVID victims, just with the basics, you know, the basics of, of credit and how you can manage your money, et cetera. It's, it's really finance 101. But fortunately, there are a lot of CFPs around the country who have volunteered to help the underserved. And our board, our organization has, has done a good job. We have corporate sponsorship of 
Schwab and TD Ameritrade and Pershing and Fidelity and, and all the big players, as well as leading financial planners around the country. And we've got an army of volunteers. And you could say, well, it's just a drop in the bucket. And it is, but it is leading the way and I, it's growing in its momentum. And I think the fact that we've been able to to reach so many people and it seems to be growing every moment. My guess is event, one thing we do is if we give a, a grant to an organization to help a particular segment, for instance, they had a project in the Indian reservations at one time. They said, well, if this can be duplicated rather than our doing it all, here's the model and you can get our model and go from there. So that's number one. Number two is I, I wrote a book for widows back in the eighties, which is in its fifth edition with a psychologist. And I just finished one on retirement for women with the same psychologist. And the big message there is these are not fi just financial events. These are emotional events. And the sooner you understand that there's an emotional component to retiring, like myself, letting go from a meaningful career and doing something else, which may not be as rewarding or may not be as purposeful. How can you adjust? This, this is a new thing for women. I mean, they're lawyers, they're doctors, they're et cetera. They're facing the same thing, corporate executives who are saying, do I really want to walk down the beach by myself? What am I going to do? You know, well, I've been working hard all my life, really enjoyed, been stimulated. What can I do now? And so how you deal with retirement, not just from a financial point of view, but also emotionally so that you do have purpose in your, as we call it, the next chapter of your life. So those are the two main things that I'm involved. I'm also involved with the Boys and Girls Club here in Sarasota, who are doing wonderful work with the underserved, and I've enjoyed working there. I am curious, like as, as a financial advisor who's advised clients on, on retirement for coming close to 50 years in the business, like what, anything that you've seen in living the retirement transition that makes you look at retirement differently now than when you were advising on it? No. Mm -mm. I think it's because my clients shared so much information and I saw them do things. For instance, we've just moved to a retirement community. And I remember with my clients, particularly single women, you would push them. They'd say, oh, no, I don't know. I can't move out of the house. I, I don't know what to do with all this stuff. And the moment they moved, you talked to them two months later and they said, I wish I'd done this years ago. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of things that that you experienced through your clients that that, that sort of resonated with you as you plan for retirement. But the other thing is the phased in. Now, as you saw, I mean, most people don't wait till they're 80 to retire. But the fact that I could gradually slow down made the adjustment so easier, much easier. I think it's very hard for the corporate executive who gets handed something at 65 and says, see you around. Then you're, there's such a direct stoppage. and But now they're saying, Employers are saying, oh, well, maybe you can work two days a week, or maybe you can work three months a year, or maybe you can. So I think the whole, the United States is getting much more realistic and not losing the talent pool. So so I really, I think I was pretty well prepared. But as you 
as we plan, you know, somebody said, well, you planned this so well. I said, well, that's my business is planning. <laughs> of course I plan well, <laughs> but anyway. But it does strike me though, you know, like all this discussion of there's supposed to be this massive, massive wave of advisors retiring over the next over the next five to 10 years because the, the median age of an advisor is creeping up towards early 60s and eligible for social security and traditional retirement ages. And, and you know, I like I chuckled at this for years saying like, I feel like the people doing these studies don't understand what it's like to actually be an advisor well into your career with a with a good business and and good client relationships. Like it's not exactly the sort of business where you say, oh, I'm eligible for social security now. I think I'm going to go ahead and sell my firm and leave. Right. You can hang out for quite a while thereafter, maybe, maybe gradually dialing down a little bit, but not necessarily just saying like, oh, social security eligible, I'm going to write off in the sunset now. Yeah, that's the people who don't like what they're doing. But most financial planners like what they're doing and find it very satisfying. And I know it's a little hard on the younger generation. They say, when is he ever going to retire? He says he's going to, but we, you know, it was five years, five years ago, and he still hasn't retired. So I do think you do have to like figure out a way to let go of the reins or decide that your role is different. For instance, I am quote unquote chairman emeritus. And what that means is that I participate in the management meetings, which are once a month. And all I do, I, I don't do anything else with the firm. But what I do do is bring up, I mean, like the last management meeting, sometimes I'll bring up something because they're so close to doing the business. I'll say, so what is our plan for going back to work? Are we going back? If we're going back, are we going to phase it in? Who wants to go back to work? Who doesn't? Because we're still remote. And they had thought about it and had sort of a plan, but really hadn't focused on it. So it's things like that, that because you're away from it and you're not right on top of it, that maybe you can add some perspective to what they're doing. In the retirement community, I've been here six weeks and they tapped me two weeks ago to go on the finance committee. And I was told that was there were eight other people who wanted to get off the committee that they put me ahead because of my experience. So, you know, again, you can find plenty of things that use your talents that can help other people and just say this is the next chapter of my life. This is, I'm going on to the next part. So uh, as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes always that comes up is just the, even the word success means different things to different people. And so you, you've had a wonderful path of success and growth in the, in the business and, and building a billion dollar advisory firm. But I, I'm wondering now, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, the first part is I, I said I the fact that I think I that my firm will survive after my departure is very meaningful to me. The fact that I have four partners who can carry on the tradition of our firm, who have been involved for a long time and are carrying the culture. And that helped me be able to retire because I knew that it wasn't going to implode and they may sell out like people do. And if they do, that'll be the right decision for them. But I think I've I've built a viable organization that has a good reputation, that is respected by clients and by our peers. I think being respected by your peers is probably the most important thing because they know the good from the bad. I think that is the fact that I've been able to create that out of whole cloth 
and been able to, and as I said, the Foundation for Financial Planning is, is, is success, that we've been able to move that to, that, that our profession has developed something like that that is outside our business that gives back. I consider that a, a mark of success too. For pro bono services to balance out that we do have a little bit of a skew towards working with some more affluent folks. And uh, no question. so the foundation scratches the, the, the itch on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, to reach the people we don't reach in our daily practice. And I think some people shy away from volunteering for the foundation because they think, well, we don't understand this, but we've got a tutorial that helps you on that. So, <laughs> so anybody who's listening to this, think about being a volunteer if you, if you have the time. Well, I, I so appreciate you, Alex, just for joining us in the podcast, but just the, the impact of all of the organizations that you've had and have, have been involved with, you know, and just sort of the, you know, that, that things like, oh, the FSI was just kind of a side thing in the 1980s because, hey, it seems like all these independent broker dealers should get together and 35 years later, this is like a 50,000 person organization is just uh, amazing and, and, and the firm and involvement in the profession and, and the foundation, everything along with it. So thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you for interviewing me, Michael. I was talking to somebody else earlier. I remember having lunch with you many years ago when you were just starting out and you were speaking to, it seemed to me, like every IFP chapter in the country. And mm -hmm. But yet you, were, you weren't charging them anything. I said, Michael, you need to start charging them something. <laughs> and that was many years ago, as we know, but uh, yes. it was, <laughs> things have changed. I'm delighted to see how successful you have become and how much you've contributed to the profession. You are a real credit to our profession and a real thought provoker. And I thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>